thank you all for joining this uh, TED talk today. And um, like I just said, with that format, we want to give you the opportunity to listen to bright minds from the industry and very much outside of SAP for some new and inspirational insights. I'm very happy today to welcome Dr. Phil Squire for our TED talk session today. Uh, I know from some of the attendees that you know him already, but for all of you, Phil is he's the CEO of Consalia, that's a sales consulting and education company uh, based in the UK. Phil, he's providing those sales education services uh, and um, his research on sales for over 20 years now, not only for and with SAP, but also like for example, for Apple, HP, Toshiba, if I recall, many others. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm also sure he can also give you a lesson for real tennis if you ask him, because that's one of his <laughs> favorite sports. And uh, I also tried it once. Believe me, it's like playing chess with a ball. <laughs> it's a true gentleman sport. <laughs> me personally, uh, as you have heard, I have the privilege to know and work with Phil since uh, 2017, I guess. Um, yeah. And uh, we had since then multiple touch points uh, with our sales and sales development teams. And his company, Consalia, he's also running the master's program for SAP. And before we go into the session, spoiler warning, I also have his book, right? <laughs> to steal too much of your time, Phil, uh, the stage is yours and uh, we listen to your presentation now. Well, thank you very much, Waldemar. It's always slightly nervous to follow someone who's done their final dissertation on storytelling. And I, I know that Waldemar is going to be benchmarking my ability to tell some stories, perhaps, in this <laughs> TED talk. And uh, but I hope I do. I hope I do you proud, Waldemar. So um, thank you very much. So um, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for the introduction. I've got a number of um, uh, sort of slides to guide me uh, through the next uh, 35 minutes or so. Um, I'm very happy for you to ask me any questions as we go through. So I've been asked in, in uh, 40 minutes or so to talk about transform sales, which is a hell of a big subject to cover in 40 minutes. So um, I want to drill down into a kind of number of areas which I think will be relevant to kind of sales uh, leaders of, of sales. And um, I would like to kind of focus a little bit on culture and the role that culture plays in sales performance. And I would also like to share with you some of the detail of the research that I've conducted uh, with customers about what they expect from salespeople. So these are the two sort of interconnecting themes, if you like. Um, so, I want to take you a little bit back into my own history. Um, I was born uh, in Ascension Island. This is where I came into the world. First of all, it's a very important hub in between um, Africa and the Latin Americas. It's a communication hub. And my father was in telecoms and they have a, an important boosting station on this island. And that's where I was, where, where, where my, my, my mother gave birth to me. But the, the relevance of Ascension Island is not so much telling you where I was born, um, but actually um, that on in, in the last 10 years, I've realized it's it's very important from a scientific interest. And 
um, it's of scientific interest because Darwin, when he was coming back from the Galapagos Islands, where he was studying his, his seminal book on survival of the fittest, as you may recall, came upon Ascension Island as a source of fresh water, um, you know, for the ships that they were on. And at that time, it was just a barren rock. It was simply a volcanic island in the middle of the Atlantic with nothing on it, apart from some small indigenous sort of bushes. And it was the center of um, quite an active sort of turtle population at the time. Um, and when he returned to the UK, he began to formulate an idea that was contrary to the survival of the fittest. Um, ideas that he was writing about. And, and his question was, is it possible to fabricate in nature an island such as Ascension Island, such that we can transform that island in terms of its vegetation and, and so on and so forth? So he ordered people every time they came back to Ascension Island to plant trees. And this happened over quite a number of years. And you can see there are clouds above Ascension Island. And what has happened is that they have now got across the top of the crater of Ascension, this, um, this incredibly lush rainforest because the trees have produced vapor, the vapor has produced rain, and they've started this sort of cyclical um, process, which is encouraged a huge amount of growth of, of, of vegetation. So you could have argued that contrary to survival of the fittest, it is possible even in barren circumstances to create another type of culture, an eco-culture. The problem is, as scientists have now discovered, and there's a big science uh, research laboratory here run by Exeter University, is that it's out of control. Um, the plants that they've brought in have um, completely destroyed the indigenous and anything that was indigenous on Ascension. And this quote uh, that I've got here on the left hand side is, is quite interesting. Um, this, this was a forest that was truly artificial. Rather than trying to improve an environment by force, the best approach might be to work with life to help it find its own way. So let me just connect this with sales. In the sales world, it, you know, if we're making the connection, rather than trying to improve sales environment by force, maybe by the way in which we manage and target and carrot and stick people, the best approach might be to work with salespeople to help them find their own way, which is, interestingly, um, very much the sort of philosophy that we have behind the sales leadership master's program that we have um, developed with um, SAP. I'm going to make two connections back to this because sales is often about survival of the fittest. So Darwinian philosophies are interesting, um, but so is, um, so is not being truly artificial. Um, so I'm going to come back to this, uh, this slide a bit later on. So there is definitely a link between where I happen to be born and and the purpose of the of, of of this talk which i'll I'll come back to later on so um as you have probably gathered my interest and my specialization is in sales transformation and particularly from a kind of cultural point of view 
So this is something that I'd just like to share with you. It, the, the first quote here comes from an article that was in Harvard Business Review some years ago. And it sort of makes the link between strategy and culture. And I imagine given the senior roles that you all have inside SAP, that you are absolutely involved in executing the sort of SAP strategies through your different um, through your different units that you're kind of managing or influencing. And you probably have people working with you and therefore appreciate the importance of culture. So the way these Harvard lecturers have kind of looked at strategy, this is the formal logic for the company's goals and orientates around people achieving um, what it is required to uh, execute on strategy. But culture expresses the goals through values and belief systems and guides activity through shared assumptions and group norms. So what I'd like to do, given you know, the senior level of the audience here, is I want to focus a little bit on culture, but I want to link this notion of culture and the culture of your organizations to strategy. And of course, this very famous quote that you probably <laughs> have come across before, which is attributed to Peter Drucker at the bottom here, is culture eats strategy for breakfast. And one could spend po possibly quite a long time debating which is more important, cultural strategy. But my sense is that if I were asked you, if I were to ask you the question, what would you rather have? A, um, a teams of people working with you where the culture was right, the values and belief systems were right, perhaps the strategy was wrong, or would you rather have the strategy that's right, but the culture's wrong? Which of those two scenarios would you prefer? Perhaps that's something we could come back to later on. I just don't know as a, as a, as a debate. So I'm going to now sort of drill into this sort of cultural dimension. And what I hope I can give you from this next sort of session is some insights that I've got a lot from the doctoral research project that I've done. Um, and I would like, hopefully, to make the link between that research and culture and how can you build a culture based on core values and belief systems? And I think a lot of this, this will be familiar to some of our master students, is a lot of the, the issue about, you know, which is more important, strategy or culture, is defined by the problem that you're trying to solve. Are we trying to build a faster caterpillar? Meaning that we don't need to change fundamental belief systems and, and values. Or is the nature of the way our market is changing, we actually need to transition to a butterfly? Um, the whole point about transformation is that once you've transformed, you cannot go back. So a butterfly cannot go back to the, you know, to kind of the caterpillar. But it could be that actually we don't need to transform to a butterfly. We simply need to get more effective at what we do. Um, but I think this is fund a, a fundamental question that can be asked of leaders, which is given the challenges that we're facing, what's required? Is it driving faster change potentially or more effective change or is what's required a degree of transformation? And if it's transformation, then we absolutely have to kind of focus in on values and belief systems because that's where the transformation kind of will, will occur. So maybe we can come back to this question 
a bit later on. So I want to wind back a little bit in time. And I was involved in my in my doctorate on a global research program, um, which started off in the tech sector, and then it moved to manufacturing, insurance, and other sectors, where I was exploring what was quite a simple question based on how do customers want to be sold to. And as part of the exercise, I was also asking the customers the question, well, given what you've just described to me in terms of how you want salespeople to sell to you or selling organizations to sell to you, what percentage of salespeople sell in the way that you want? And it probably will not come as a huge surprise um, when I show you that the research that I've done, and it was it, it was over now many hundreds of people, is less than 10% of salespeople sell in a way that customers want. So when I look at this kind of fact, um, for me, what it's done is it kind of is not there to bash salespeople over the head with. It's clear that there is a source of competitive advantage if our selling organization can be in the 10%. And I borrowed one of SAP's terms, which is the winner's circle. For me, the winner's circle is that 10% and really wanting to find out what it is that those 10% do in order to be that 10%. And the particular lens that I found myself researching was through the lens of selling organizations' values and belief systems. And this is where this therefore links to culture and sales culture, which I talked about earlier on. I interviewed so many customers around the world and it was it was an absolute privilege. And I think one of the epiphany moments that I had was when I went over to Seattle and I um, had the, the um, good fortune to interview the chief marketing officer of Starbucks, the CIO, and a young lady who was just out of Harvard Business School, um, a very bright young lady who was heading up their new ventures team. And this was at a point in time where internet was becoming very well established and Starbucks was at the time not internet enabled. Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, recognized that they needed to equip the 1400 Starbucks stores with internet. And he went to this group of people and they'd done some rough calculations about what it would cost them to do it and they came up with a $100 million investment, which they thought they'd need to put into the stores over a 10-year period. I mean, how many cups of coffee do you need to sell to get payback on $100 million? And um, he actually went to this small group of people and said, look, I want you to come up with an RFP proposal to get tech companies to invest that money for nothing. So you can imagine getting an RFP from Starbucks saying, We'd like you to invest in internet enabling our 1400 stores. And, and by the way, we want you to fund it. So, I mean, clearly this small group of individuals had to come up with some sort of value proposition to put to the suppliers. And uh, they began to realize that what Starbucks had that these vendors didn't have was access to the consumer market in the same way that Starbucks did. 
Starbucks had at the time something like 14 million customers coming into a Starbucks store every week. And 45% of those customers came in five times a week. So they had this incredible, interesting demographic of the sort of people that would be investing in the kind of technology that was then at this time emerging. Um, they started to calculate how much would it cost these vendors to get their brand in front of these 14 million customers and how important it was for these vendors to get to um, a dominant market share quickly. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to cut a bit of a long story you know, quite short for the purposes of the talk here, but they realized that they had a value proposition, that they put it out to the tech vendors. And um, at the time, there were organizations like Hewlett Packard, IBM, Dell, and others who were launching this new, new technology. And, and um, HP actually won this deal. Um, you say one, should they, should they have even pitched for the deal? And what was interesting, because I interviewed not just Starbucks, but I went and interviewed the account team at, um, at HP at the time, the people that negotiated the deal. And clearly they were being very creative about how would you get the ROI or payback from this kind of opportunity. And that included not just selling their mobile telephony to the consumer market in America, which is terribly important, um, but it was also getting share of wallet inside Starbucks as an account. And, I mean, they did a great job in putting together a, a deal. The final cost was 60 million, not 100 million over the five year period. When I when I came back from interviewing both Starbucks and HP, for me, this was the an epiphany moment, if you like, on my research. And I came back with this thought, which was, it's a great deal. Clever Starbucks to have come up with such a, a bold RFP, because I've not seen anything quite like this before. But I came back with the thought that what if, and this is the great question, what if the tech vendors had come up with the idea before Starbucks did? That was the key question for me. And that then made me think, well, what mindset, what values and belief system would you needed to have had in an account exec working for a tech company to have thought of this idea before Starbucks did? And this, for me, helped to consolidate the research that I was doing about the values that customers would want from salespeople and not, and not get. I don't know if I need to stop, Waldemar. Tell me if I need to stop, or shall I no, continue on? Catching <laughs> my nose. That was not a secret sign. Oh, oh, no, 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 that was not a signal. I know. I noticed you're scratching your nose, a nervous twitch, perhaps. So, um, what I'm going to share with you here, and this will be familiar to some of you that have been on on the master's program, is that we talk here about the hierarchy of values and. Um, this is the positive sales mindsets, as we refer to, that after all the interviews that we kind of distilled them into these four buckets. So what happens if you do a doctorate? You spend four years coming up with four ideas. So these are my four ideas um, that the values that customers look for is authenticity, 
So go back to the uh, Ascension Island slide that I showed earlier on. Yeah, is that is that Darwin was trying to build an inauthentic landscape in order to test a theory. Yeah, customers do not like salespeople who act in any way inauthentically. It doesn't work, and they can sense when people are trying to be manipulative, or people are trying to be. Um, sort of goal oriented sell them things that perhaps they don't know, uh, don't need. Um, client centricity speaks for itself. Um, you know, they, the customers want vendors to have very much the client at the center of all the vendor strategy. And I think what SAP is now doing with LACE, with all of the initiatives that are now, uh, I can see happening at SAP, is that a lot of the systems and processes now, the end-to-end -end kind of uh, sales cycle is, is, I can see sort of helping to fuel a behavior in the sales organizations inside SAP to treat the client over the life cycle of a solution and not be too siloed in the way those clients are approached. So I can see that SAP is making considerable steps in this direction. These two values very much speak to this idea of trust. Without being authentic, without being client-centric, you don't build trust. But there are different levels of trust. There's a level of trust where people trust what you're saying, but there are strategic levels of trust where you have selling organizations who live the second two values, which are around proactive creativity the, I, the idea that a salesperson would come up with, with a thought, like in the Starbucks example, before the customer does. And then having the audacity, the boldness, to be able to take that unsolicited thought, if you like, to the customer, uh, uh, which, which is done in a tactful way, um, is our, our um, uh, behaviors driven by beliefs and value systems that customers really appreciate. And in the research that we've done with, um, you know, with, with interviewing these many hundreds of customers and the Starbucks type examples, this, the, you know, having these belief systems and these values, we could see as a hypothesis at the time of the doctorate, as being fundamental, a fundamental platform for driving sales growth and driving the right type of sales growth. Um, the negative mindsets, I'm just going to dwell on. Uh, oh, I sorry, the, please. I know the questions are for the end, but uh, I noticed that the last two, they have a trademark sign. Uh, I understand that it's very proactive and also creative to claim it for for yourself. Yeah. Does it mean when we use it, we need to pay you something? When we you use don't the word, need to yes. pay us? No, no, not at all. Just recognize where it came from. Yeah. Uh, okay. Use those skills. We need to back pay if there's some. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, we have trademarked. Uh, yeah, we have trademarked the names because they're such a fundamental part now of, of kind of what we've done. Uh, so, so yes, the trademark renewals came up in May, so I do know that uh, that's still happening. But no, by the way, you are absolutely free to use any of this information as you wish. I mean, it's 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 fine. Um, 
Uh, and I think a lot of our students have used this as the way, I don't know if you've used it, Adam, in the way you're starting to look at your team and coaching and so on and so forth, but uh, uh, it's very much sort of central to what we do. Um, yes, um, so kind of moving on, the negative mindsets and, you know, are around manipulation, you know, uh, being supplier centric, uh, complacency and and arrogance and I don't want to spend too much on the negatives I think the only thing that I would say is that I honestly have been quite surprised in all of the um, extensive research that we've done how how many salespeople's behaviors according to customers fall into these categories um, uh, but I, I don't want you know it, it I just found it surprising so um, in terms of timeline on defining these negative and positive mindsets, um, the question that we began to raise was, well, can is there any evidence, you know, business evidence that living these positive sales mindsets will result in some kind of business performance improvement? And again, we were lucky enough um, to be have been working with a tech client at the time, it was Hewlett-Packard, where we were able to set up two control groups, where we were able to measure across a two-year period um, the um, impact on business performance, taking one control group through embedding these mindsets in every stage of the sales cycle, from beginning to end to negotiating, and so on and so forth, uh, and and compare it to um, kind of another control group, which had um, no input from us at all. And we took 20 quite large deals in uh, uh, and deal teams with HP's uh, deal team working on managed the managed services business of of the organisation. Um, and what you can see on this slide is is the business impact. Yeah, I mean, it was it was quite a, a, a extraordinary, and we were also able to measure um, the um, market share that resulted from. So the, the you know the growth in their business was was highly um, significant. Um, I think something like four billion was closed over that period of time on these very, very large deals. Um, as compared to the other control group where their close ratios improved not to 77%, but to 33% in, 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 in Central Europe. Um, this is published. It's uh, published in the book that I've written. It also has been published in various journals. So we came out of this convinced that the mindsets and ROI are very closely linked and, and probably just common sense would tell you that that is in, indeed the, um, the case. So I just wanted to um, sort of have some summarizing thoughts with you before um, we maybe took some Q&A. The first question is that we often get asked this question is it possible to change people's values and belief systems? Is it possible to, um, you know, to change the way in which people think they should do sales and the way they 
believe that they can do sales. And our answer to this is it, it is possible to change people's values and belief systems. We're not born with values and belief systems. We we grow into them over time. You know, we're influenced by our mentors, our our family around this topic. So, and as you can see with the HP example, um, we absolutely were able to take those mindsets and in a very detailed way, apply that mindset through every stage of um, the sales and buying cycle. Um, and it was just a fascinating, it was a fascinating exercise. And every time we worked on a major opportunity around, uh, uh, around embedding the mindsets, what we did was we said, we know we're doing a pretty good job, or we think we are, but how can we stretch the boundary? If it's about client centricity, how can we be doing more to understand the client better? Um, and this sort of energy that went into creating what became a new culture around the values and belief system was just an extraordinary journey. So, so the answer to the first question is, yes, we do believe it's possible. Um, no doubt at SAP, you have pockets of people who naturally live these values and beliefs, but you may have pockets of people who don't. Um, and so for those that don't, is it possible to change? It is possible, uh, we believe, to change. The second thought that I found quite interesting as I was doing the doctorate is the predictive nature of values and belief systems. If you know in your sales team that your sales team have a particular values and belief approach, you can pretty well be guaranteed to know how they're going to behave in a crisis or how they're going to be, um, behave in any kind of sales opportunity or problem. And as a leader, it makes you much more comfortable that if that culture is really strong, that the way in which your teams are going to act or react is going to be as you would want it. Um, so the predictive nature of values and beliefs, which links back to this culture kind of issue that we had uh, talked about at the very beginning. Um, what I've shared with you is this sort of detail of the of the um, of of my research, and I'm really happy to sort of go into that more. Um, what I've shared with you is is a quite a central theme of what it is we cover on the sales, ma sales master's program that SAP have, have embarked upon. And I know that you're probably all in positions where you could encourage frontline sales managers to join the program. Please do. I think the next cohort is pretty well filled at the moment, but, but bear that in mind. And um, yeah, buy the book. Uh, launched earlier this book, Selling Transformed. It's doing quite well. It's available on Amazon and Waterstones. It's available all over the world. Um, so if you are interested in any of the topics and would like to go into it in more detail, then uh, we've got loads of interesting case studies and tools in the book, which, uh, which people have uh, found useful. So on that note, Waldemar, I know that we're approaching the 45 minute mark, I believe. I think we started a bit late. 
later, but I'm very happy to stop sharing my screen if I can. That we have our headquarters in Germany. That doesn't mean that we run by the minute. Uh, so oh, <laughs> we still have some flexibility. Yeah, first of all, I mean, before we into Q, get into Q&A, first of all, thank you very much for, for sharing, Phil. And, uh, Pleasure. Yeah, I mean, very inspirational for me. And I just thought by myself, is it that you always tell the same story and I'm a little bit stubborn and needs longer to get it? Or <laughs> is it always a different uh, viewpoint which uh, triggers some ideas with me? And uh, and yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's both. Sometimes it's the repetition. I mean, the, the caterpillar and the, the, the butterfly and change and transformation, we heard it and we heard it often, but it's still good once in a while to get, uh, to get reminded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Q&A is for, for, for everyone, of course, but, but let me start with a question first in regards to a culture. Is a culture, does a good culture needs to be agnostic, that it is the skeleton which helps you to go through the constant changes uh, which you are facing, or also to which extent does the culture need to adopt to these changes? I think... It such a it's at a time of crisis that culture becomes particularly important you know when things aren't going as well as you as you um as you would want them to and it's there that the true values and culture of an organization become very explicit you know i've had i've had conversations recently with senior sales leaders who have missed for the first time in 13 quarters one quarter And I've seen the most incredibly um, negative behavior from senior leaders in, you know, in the desire to try and reach targets. Um, and what you see is a kind of values and belief systems. You know, you, you see how people are reacting in a, in a state of almost panic in some cases, you know, um, with that kind of pressure. So pivotal moments for me really tell you what the culture of an organization is. When things are going well, you can wash a lot of things under the carpet. You don't really sort of necessarily need to notice. But when it matters, it tends to be when you're in a crisis or in, you're in a challenging situation. So I would say that the market environment now, Waldemar, even compared to when you first talked to me about the TED talk a couple of months ago, has changed. So it's a different kind of scenario. I mean, the ability to deal with ambiguity and change, all of those things, you know, is a more a leadership um, kind of cultural dimensions rather than, if you like, the front line sales. But what, what all I can say is that if you've got salespeople who are proactively creative and tactfully audacious, you need those values right now right now when things aren't so so good and if they haven't got that mindset and belief system you're going to be uh chasing your tail a bit so for me these values are important all the time but they're particularly important when you're facing challenging times that's what i would say 